If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. That's page 884 in your black pew Bibles there in front of you. Luke 23. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 43 today. This is the second sermon in a series of sermons on the last seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And so we're going to look at the second saying of Christ from the cross today found in these verses. One of my all-time favorite movies is Saving Private Ryan. I'm not a big movie guy, but I do enjoy a good war movie. I first watched Saving Private Ryan when I was in high school. I was about to graduate high school and actually go off to basic training, and this movie scared the... It was terrifying, I'll put it that way. It scared me to death. Um, but if you like war movies, it's, it's one of the best. Now, if you're not familiar with the plot of Saving Private Ryan, it's basically this. The U.S. has entered World War II, an American mother has all four of her sons fighting in the war. She gets news that three of her sons have just been killed in battle. Her only remaining son, Private James Ryan, parachuted down somewhere in Europe. Now this news, which is devastating, it it makes its way up the chain to the highest military officials and that this mother is in danger of losing all four of her sons. And the orders are given to go and to find Private Ryan and bring him home. So Captain Miller, this is Tom Hanks, he gets the task. He's just stormed the beach of Normandy with his troops. He gets the job of selecting a few of his best men and going in search of Private Ryan. Now the rest of the movie follows Captain Miller and his men as they move from town to town, from battle to battle, searching for Private Ryan. It really is like a needle in a haystack. Now Miller, Captain Miller loses several of his own men in this process and tempers flare because some of the men lose hope of ever finding Private Ryan. They question, is it really worthy that we give our lives for this one man. It's one man. What are we doing? It's a tremendous movie because it's all about sacrifice. Over and over we see men laying down their lives, not just to rescue Private Ryan, but for the sake of Ryan's mother and his entire family. Throughout the movie, there are these gut-wrenching scenes of soldiers dying and they're breathing their last words. And as is often the case, when they come to die, their minds become fixed on what is most important to them. Not necessarily in that moment, but most important to them in their whole life. What is most important? Their mothers, their wives, their family and friends. Tell my mother I love her. Give this letter to my dad, the man says as he's dying on the ground. History has recorded the famous last words of many great men. And when they come to die, only the most important things matter. Family, love, God, eternal life. A wise man once said, 
a man truly is as he is on his deathbed. A man truly is as he is on his deathbed. When we are looking into the face of eternity, who we truly are will be revealed. That is definitely the case for the three men that we're going to read about today. Who they really were became clear as they approached death. They were forced to come to terms. These these two men, the two criminals that Jesus is, is crucified next to, they are forced to come to terms with the man dying beside them. And the conclusions they come to were very, very different. You see, it's impossible to remain neutral about Jesus. When anyone encounters the person of Christ, a choice must be made. The choice is either to reject his lordship or to submit to it. There is no middle ground. There can be no half measures with Christ. As you read through the gospel accounts, you see these different people coming into contact with Jesus and responding to him in different ways. But all of those responses can be boiled down to either Submission or rejection? Scoffing or repentance? Arrogance or humility? Scorn or worship? You can call it all kinds of different things. But no one remains indifferent to Jesus. He is either the Lord, the Messiah, God in the flesh, and worthy of all of our worship, or he's a lying, crazy man, and deserves to be rejected. In our passage today, we have two very different responses to Jesus, and then one promise from Jesus. So two responses, one promise. That's my outline. Two responses, one promise. My hope today is that we would see that those who come to Jesus, those who come to Jesus in humble dependence, receive his compassion. Those who come to Jesus in humble dependence receive his compassion. And let's start reading in verse 32. This is Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. David preached on that last week. I encourage you to go back and listen to his sermon about that first saying. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our gospel writer, Luke, he tells us that Jesus was crucified along with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, all four gospel writers mention these two criminals, but Luke is the only one who records their words. While Luke tells us they were criminals, Matthew and Mark tell us they were robbers. I'm sure many of us are accustomed to hearing about the thief on the cross, right? It's important to note that this term robber doesn't just mean someone who stole something. You probably wouldn't be crucified if you just stole something. But rather, robbing is stealing by force or violence. These men were violent men. They caused physical harm to others to get what they wanted, perhaps great physical harm if they're undergoing crucifixion for it. Both of these criminals have something to say to Jesus. Let's begin with the first response. Look with me at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. There's two things I want us to notice about this statement. First is the acknowledgement of truth, and the second is a refusal to submit to that truth. Now, notice the first statement the criminal makes. Are you not the Christ? The Christ is another term for the Messiah or the anointed one. It's not totally clear whether this criminal actually believed Jesus to be the Messiah or not. Maybe he's just using this term the way the others used it in the above verses as a way of mocking Jesus. But it doesn't really matter if he really believed Christ was the Messiah or not, does it? Because this is often the way people misuse the truth. For those who are accustomed to lying and manipulating, truth is not something to be affirmed or declared or loved. It is a tool to be used to get what they want. This is clear when we look at the second half of the statement. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see, this man is willing to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ as long as he gets something out of it. Is Jesus the Holy One of God to be worshipped and adored? Uh, Sure, yeah, that's fine. Now, can you get me out of this suffering? Is Jesus the incarnate Son of God, the one who was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were created? Yeah, yeah, okay. But if he really is that person, then he needs to probably prove it, right, by working some kind of miracle for me. That's the kind of thinking that's here. This is how depraved this kind of thinking is. It is a mockery of Christ and a denial of his true identity. Church, how often do we treat Christ in this same way? When we encounter suffering or hardship or something that just seems unfair to us, do we go to him only seeking deliverance from that thing? Do we plead with him to do for us what we want him to do? Do we demand a sign from him or some kind of assurance that he really does love us? Sure, we're fine with acknowledging his power and his lordship in those times as long as he can just kind of get us over the hump, right? Get us through whatever we're experiencing. 
The truth of Christ works for us when it benefits us in some way. But if it means I have to give something up, or if it means my sin gets exposed, or if things get harder for me, then no thank you. I can do without. You see, this first criminal had no love for Christ. He did not bow his knee in humble worship. Jesus was just another person to use to get what he wanted. You see, church, this is why following Christ is more than simply acknowledging spiritual truth. It's not just about affirming doctrines and agreeing with theological statements. Following Christ means knowing who he is, but also loving who he is. This criminal could have professed the Lord, could have professed the deity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ. But if he did not love Christ, if he did not worship Christ, then he was just as unsaved as he ever had been. You see, following Christ means understanding his nature and his teachings, but also falling on our knees before him in humble worship. It's seeing Christ and savoring his goodness. And that's what we see in the second criminal. Let's turn to his response now. Look at verse 40. But the other, that's the other criminal, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Quickly, there are five observations I want us to see about this criminal's response. First, he recognizes his own guilt and accepts his penalty, which is death. He's given up his efforts of self-preservation and self-righteousness. He doesn't try to cling to some kind of status or, or special standing before God. He doesn't make any excuses for his guilt. He doesn't try to explain it away or minimize it like it's no big deal. He doesn't point the finger at someone else. There is no half measures here. He's done. He's at his wit's end. There's no yeah, but statements. Yeah, I know I did wrong, But, I mean, is this really necessary? I mean, crucifixion? Come on. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but what I've done isn't really worse than anyone else. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard, you know, when you stop somebody for speeding. Why are you out here bothering me for speeding when we got murderers running the streets, right? Why are you dealing with me with this little theft. I stole, you know, okay, I stole something, but why are you messing with me when we got people killing across town, you know? What I'm doing isn't as bad as so-and-so, right? None of that. None of that. No excuses. No explanations. No blame shifting. There is a resolute conviction that I am guilty and I am getting what I deserve. All of this suffering I am experiencing is a direct result of choices I have made. 
Friends, this kind of recognition, this is so often missing today, even among Christians. How often do we make excuses and try to explain our sin to others? How often do we admit only half of it to a brother and then try to conceal the worst of it? How often when we are confronted with the reality of sin, do we immediately just run to comparing ourselves with someone else who seems to be a worse offender? All of this is a smokescreen. All it does is show that we have not really come to terms with the seriousness of our sin in our own depraved condition. I ask you, what sin are you minimizing today? How are you blame-shifting your sin upon someone else? What are your yeah-but statements? Yeah, but... Friends, lay them down today. There is such freedom. Sin is bondage. Holding on to a little bit of it is bondage. Let it go. Be open about it. Let someone in to your life. Freely confess these things. No strings attached. I am guilty. I deserve death. Second, he fears God. This goes hand in hand with recognizing his own guilt. He fears God. When any sinner realizes his desperate condition before a holy God, the result will be a holy fear. He will see God as his holy and righteous judge. God will be real to him and near to him, oftentimes near to him for judgment. It is right to fear the judgment of God, friends. That is right. We ought to fear the judgment of God. If you're here and you're in Christ, there was a moment in time where you feared the judgment of God. You may not fear it anymore in the fact that it's like a reality for you because Christ has taken that judgment, but when you came to Christ... There was a holy fear of judgment. You see, God, for this criminal, is not just a theory or an abstract theological idea anymore. He's about to meet him face to face. He fears God's judgment, and he sees God as worthy of his life and worship. Third, he recognizes the righteousness of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that this criminal had a, a, a robust, complete theological understanding of the sinlessness of Christ, and Christ is fully God and fully man and all of that. I don't think he fully understood that Jesus was laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Jesus' own disciples didn't understand any of that, and Jesus plainly told them what he was going to do. But... This man did recognize and confess that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He knew enough to know that this man next to him was righteous. 
Now, this understanding is necessary for anyone who comes into a saving knowledge of Jesus. There must be a recognition that Jesus has lived a radically different life than every other human who has ever existed. There is something different about this man. I don't know what it is exactly. I can't put my finger on it, but I must be like him. I must be with him. Nothing else matters anymore. I must follow this man. We see this throughout the Gospels when men and women repeatedly drop everything they are doing to be with Jesus. That's where this man's heart is. He may not get it all. He may know very little. We don't know what all he knows. But he knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He wants to be with him. Church, do you want to be with Jesus no matter what the cost, even if it costs you your life, your family, your reputation? Do you see him as worth it all? Acknowledging and submitting to and loving the righteousness of Christ. I want that to be our heartbeat as a church. We can, we can stop trying to prove that we are righteous. And we just say, he's done it for me. He is the righteous one. Let's look to him. And fourth, he acknowledges Jesus as king. He uses the word kingdom. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. I never noticed that before. I never, I never thought about that until this week. Who has a kingdom? Only a king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It makes you wonder what this criminal did know about Jesus. But clearly he understands that Jesus has authority. He sees Jesus as righteous. He knows this man has answers. He knows he has authority and that there will be some kind of kingdom Again, he wants to be there, wants to be with him. Fifth and last, he turns to Jesus for deliverance. You see, it's one thing to recognize a king and then say, yeah, but that man is a king, but I don't want anything to do with his kingdom. Anybody can do that. But this man knows the kingdom of Jesus is where he needs to be. He turns to Jesus for deliverance. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And notice what this thief's priority is. He does not plead for deliverance from worldly suffering or physical pain, like the first criminal. He's not trying to get down off the cross. He has submitted himself to his worldly punishment. He knows these things are fleeting and he knows what matters most is not temporal, but eternal. He knows that getting down off the cross and getting healed of all his wounds is not ultimate. What's ultimate is just being remembered by Christ. He knows that if this man can just remember him, think of him, he will be okay. Friends, the humility we see in this dying man is staggering. It's staggering to me. It is a model for us all. 
This man has nothing else to hope in, nowhere else to turn, and he sees Jesus as his only hope. He's given up on his own self-righteousness and self-preservation. This attitude is an example for us all. And we oftentimes get this backwards, right? I've said things like this before. I think it bears repeating. We start to believe that growing in the Christian life is about showing less weakness and needing Jesus less. We think that the really good Christians are those who talk a lot and always have the right answers and never seem like they need anyone, right? But church, God does not need more self-sufficient disciples. What He desires is a broken and contrite heart. What God wants of you more than anything is this kind of desperation for Him. This is growth in Christ. This criminal was growing in Christ right here on the cross. That's what growth in Christ is. It's not needing Jesus less, weaning ourselves off of Him. No. It is recognizing more and more, I am in desperate need. I am a sinner. I must have Christ. If I don't have Him, I have nothing. That's Christian maturity. My prayer is that we would all develop this criminal's dependence upon Christ. But this sermon is not supposed to be about these criminals. It's about the second saying of Jesus on the cross. And so let's turn there now. If you would look with me. We've seen two different responses to the person of Jesus, but the main part of our passage is how Jesus responds to them. Look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. First, let's take notice that Jesus has nothing to say to the first criminal. Nothing is recorded. Now, for those who reject Christ, who scorn his sacrifice, who do not humbly submit to his lordship, Jesus offers no comfort, no assurance, and no promise of mercy. Now, this might sound harsh, but it is something we must all acknowledge and come to terms with. If you're here and Jesus is not your Lord, you are under the condemnation and the wrath of God. There will come a day when you will give an account of your life to Him, and you will not measure up to His holy standard. And the only words Jesus will have for you then will be, depart from me. You worker of iniquity, I never knew you. The silence of Jesus toward the first thief is the silence of judgment. But to the second, Jesus extends what had to have been the most comforting words he could ever receive. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I hope the first question that you have is, well, what is paradise? What does this mean, right? Because it's really important, is it not? 
We don't get much information about what Jesus means by this. Luke just assumes his readers know what it means because they probably did. But here we are 2,000 years later. We have to do a little digging. This word paradise has the root meaning of garden. Okay, it's like a garden. It's the same idea as the Garden of Eden. It's the same root word. When you go back to the, to the, the Hebrew language, the, the original state, the original paradise that God had created for Adam and Eve. But over the course of centuries, it came to be understood as the immediate resting place for souls after death until the final resurrection. The New Testament writers used it two other times as a symbol of heaven and its eternal bliss. Once, Paul refers to his own experience in 2 Corinthians 12 as being caught up into paradise. And then it's used another time in Revelation where it's the location of the tree of life, clearly referring to the dwelling place of God, Revelation chapter 2. So this paradise that Jesus promises is the very presence of God himself. It is the intermediate state where souls go to wait until the return of Christ when he comes back to make all things new. This is important for us to understand as Christians. When we die, our bodies go into the grave, but our souls go to this intermediate state this resting place, paradise. Our souls are in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, until Jesus bodily returns, comes back to earth to establish the new heaven and the new earth and to make all things new. At that time, our souls will be reunited with new bodies a resurrected body, and we will live on this earth with Christ as our King for all eternity. Okay? That's a brief explanation of eschatology 101. Okay? But a lot of Christians don't, they don't understand all that. I'm not saying I understand it all, but that is, that is what the Bible teaches. When we die, our bodies will be in the grave, our souls will be with God, Christ will return a hundred years, a thousand years, 10,000 years from now, I don't know when, but when he returns, you will get new bodies with, with your soul to live on this earth with Christ for all eternity. It will be physical, just like this, only not just like this, way better, right? No sin. We've been dealing with the stomach flu at my house. No more stomach flu. That's all I want, Lord. You keep, you keep all the other bad stuff, just get rid of the stomach flu, please. I can't stand it. Where am I? Now, knowing that, paradise, you will be with me in paradise, this eternal bliss, not eternal bliss, this intermediate state where the souls wait until Christ returns, this is what Christ is promising. This is what he says, you will be with me here today with me in paradise. Now, with that knowledge, hear again these words of our Lord to this man that is about, I mean, minutes away from death. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a promise. Right there, 
in the midst of his agony and blood and unspeakable torment, Jesus speaks these words of life. What a comfort it would have been for this thief to know that in just a few moments, all of this would be over. And where would he be then? But standing before the throne of God, in the presence of divinity, never again subject to the torment of sin and pain in this life. Oh, what a promise and what a comfort that must have been to him. And notice when this promise will be fulfilled. It is today. This will be an immediate experience upon death. The thief seems to be asking for something less than this. It seems like he wants Jesus to remember him when he comes back, when you establish your kingdom, right? But Jesus promises something even better. You will be with me today. Immediately, you will be in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. This should be a great comfort for us as well, church. We do not have to fear death. Sure, I get. I get the fear of pain, the fear of suffering, the fear of torment and struggle. I get that. That's a real fear. But church, all of those things are fleeting and temporary. They will pass, and one day, in an instant, we will be absent from our bodies and at home with our Lord. Everyone here has a soul that will never die. Everyone. Your soul will never die. If you belong to Jesus, you will be with him immediately upon death. As we come to the close of this message, I want us to consider one last aspect of this story, which is the compassion of our Lord. Here is Christ in the agony of physical pain, agony that none of us could probably comprehend. I don't know. I'm assuming most of us have never experienced the kind of physical anguish that he is right in the midst of here. He is naked and humiliated. His body is broken. He's in the very act of dying. And yet, if there's ever a time to be self-absorbed, right? If there's ever a time to say, just leave me alone, right? I'm done. Can I just stop being like perfect for a second and just focus on me? But yet, once again, he takes notice of someone the rest of the world had no time for. Jesus never overlooks those who cry out to him for mercy. Jesus never moves past the one to get to the many. He always has time for anyone who comes to him in humble faith. Aren't you glad we have such a Savior? Consider the compassion of our Lord. This criminal, this wretched, dirty sinner who probably lived his entire life as a criminal. You don't get crucified the first time you break the law. Probably. I don't know. 
But he's probably somebody who had been given chance after chance to get his life together, and yet he continued to victimize others and take advantage of those weaker than himself. He is certainly someone we would all say just needs to be locked up and forgotten about. But not Jesus. He remembers him. He speaks words of kindness and hope to him. He forgives him and ushers him into the very presence of the Father. Church, this is our Lord. This same compassion that Jesus offers to this criminal, he offers to each of us today. Anyone who comes to Jesus in faith, seeking mercy and forgiveness, will receive it. Hear those words today. And I'd like to end where I started. I began the sermon talking about saving Private Ryan. Now I'm going to spoil some of the movie for you, but I don't feel too bad about it because it's been out for 20 years, and if you haven't seen it yet, that should be a sin in my book. But uh, towards the end of the movie, it's one of the best scenes, we see Captain Miller sustain a mortal wound. He and his men have decided to stay. They found Private Ryan. They decided to stay with him and his company and help them secure a bridge against an enemy attack. They said, Private Ryan, we're here to save you. Come with us. We're getting you home. And he's like, nope, not going. And they're probably going to get, you know, they got kind of mad about that. But eventually they decide, okay, we're going to stay here. We're going to help them secure this bridge. Once this battle's over, then we'll get them out of here. Well, during this battle... Captain Miller is shot multiple times. He's laying on the ground, and Private Ryan rushes to his side uh, because Captain Miller never left. <laughs> He's like, you're not going anywhere. You're staying with me. We're getting you out of here. Private Ryan rushes over to him. He tries to help, but they both realize that Captain Miller's going to die. With his last few dying breaths, Captain Miller says to Private Ryan, and it's, you can barely hear it in the movie, but this is what he says. He says, earn this, James. Earn it. Now, we can all understand why Captain Miller said that, right? He's lost almost all his men. Now he's about to die to save Private Ryan. He wants to make sure his sacrifice and the sacrifices of his men are not in vain. He's telling Ryan to make it worth it. Look at what we've done for you. Now don't go home and waste it all. We get that, right? From our limited human perspective, those dying words, they make sense. But friends, hear me when I say, that Christ's message to us today is so much better than that. When he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin, he did not tell the criminal, today you will be with me in paradise, but you had better earn it. No, there's nothing he could do to earn it. His life was over. And church, this is the beauty of the gospel in all of its force. The forgiveness that Jesus offers to us and the promise we have of paradise with him are absolutely free. 
There is nothing you can do to earn it. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us. He looks upon us now with that same compassion he had for this thief. And anyone who humbly reaches out to him for mercy will receive the same promise of paradise. Private Ryan, at the very end of the movie, shows him as an old man standing at the graveside of Captain Miller, and he's, he's in tears. You know what he does? He calls his wife. His wife comes over, and he, he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man. She says, you are. And he says to the grave, I've done my best to live my life the way that to make you happy, telling this to Captain Miller, I thought about what you said every day. Now, church, that elicits in me an emotional experience. I, I understand that, but that is not the gospel. Christ does not say, earn this every day. You better live this way because I gave my life for you. That is not what Christ says. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Lay your burdens down. If you're here and you are already a follower of Christ, I hope this message has helped you see even more That Jesus is our compassionate and merciful friend, the one who laid down his life for us. But let's remember that we are also surrounded by people every day who are in bondage of their fear of death. Let's be faithful disciples of Christ who proclaim this hope to those who are lost and hurting all around us. And friends, don't be discouraged by those around you who seem to be such great sinners out of reach of the mercy of Christ. You do not know what the Spirit of God is doing in their hearts or what he might might be pleased to do if the gospel were to come and be spoken into their lives. If there was anyone who seemed too far gone to come to Christ, I'm sure it was this criminal. And yet... When he encounters Christ, instantly he is a new creation. Let's be faithful to offer this compassion to those that God has placed in our lives. And last, we do not have to fear death. So cast yourself on the wonderful mercy of Christ today. Don't wait. Friends, if you're here and you know that you are not a follower of Jesus, then now is your opportunity to come to him. If you're wondering how, what do I do? I don't know how. I just encourage you to look back at the criminal on the cross. Cry out to Jesus. Confess him as your righteous Lord. Plead with him for mercy. Christ stands ready to save you. Don't let another day go by without knowing him because, friends, None of us know when our lives will be over, and then it will be too late. Do you know him, or do you just know about him? Do you love him as your Savior? Have you submitted to him as your Lord? Is he more precious to you than anything else? 
when it comes time for us to die, what we love more than anything will be revealed. And remember, those who come to Jesus in humble dependence receive his compassion. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you, God, for um, the fact that anyone here can come to you for mercy, forgiveness, and eternal life, and you will give it free of charge, no strings attached. There's no earning necessary. There's no work or striving necessary to receive eternal life. Father, we are all this criminal on the cross. The question is, which one will we be? I pray that we would not harden our hearts against you, that we would be freely confessing our sin, that you, Father, would soften us, and that we would lay down all of our excuses and come to you in full faith, acknowledging your lordship and submitting to your authority. We love Christ. Help us, Father, to love him more. In Jesus' name, amen.